You are listening to the official podcast of Salem Tabernacle in Beacon, New York, a community of people devoted to experiencing life as God meant it to be. Okay. We have three different texts to read today. One is going to be from Exodus, then Julian is going to read a text from Luke, and then I'm going to read a C.S. Lewis quote. Please do your best to hear the words that are being used. This is a very, very powerful subject matter that we're going to be talking about today. So Exodus chapter 3. Now Moses was keeping the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian, and he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. Moses looked, and behold, the bush was burning, which was common in the desert, yet it was not consumed, which was miraculous. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. He's not surprised that there's a fire. He's surprised that the fire is not destroying something. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see... God called to him out of the bush and said, Moses, Moses. And he said, here I am. Then he said, do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet for the place on which you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face for he was afraid to look at God. And now Julian's going to read Luke chapter 18 verses 9 through 14. A reading from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 18, verses 9 through 14. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, but rather than the other, rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. And then this is a quote from C.S. Lewis. It's from a book called The Screwtape Letters. And so the complication with this quote and why I need to give a quick little background is Screwtape Letters is written backwards. And so C.S. Lewis wrote a book about a demon writing to a younger demon how to trip us up against the enemy, which is God. So whenever you read the book, whenever they talk about the enemy, the enemy is God because the Screwtape Letters is a book written from the perspective of the demonic. And so when you hear our father in it, it's talking about Satan. And when you hear the enemy, it's talking about God, because these are the things that demons say to each other. And it says this. So one demon, an elder demon, is speaking to a younger demon, and he says this. The whole philosophy of evil, 
rests on the recognition of the axiom that one thing is not another thing, and especially that one self is not another self. Again, this is the counsel of the evil. This is what evil counsel sounds like. My good is my good, and yours is yours. What one gains, another loses. Even an inanimate object is what it is by excluding all other objects from the space it occupies. If it expands, it does so by thrusting other objects aside or by absorbing them. A self, a human self, does the same. With beasts, their absorption takes the form of eating. For us, it means the sucking of the will and freedom out of a weaker self into a stronger. And this is the line I want us to remember. To be means to be in competition. And then he goes on to say, now the enemy, who is God, now the enemy's philosophy is nothing more or less than one continued attempt to evade this very obvious truth. God aims at a contradiction, the demon says. Things are to be many, yet somehow are also one. The good of oneself is to be the good of another. This impossibility he calls love. Very, very, very interesting text from C.S. Lewis, where the demon says, we have to get people to realize, if we want to ruin the world, that your good is your good, and my good is my good, and when things go bad for me, they don't go bad for you. When things go bad for you, they don't go bad for me. And when I increase in wealth, you don't. Or if you increase in wealth, I don't. Or if you get poorer, that doesn't matter to me at all. If I expand, I expand by taking away the space you have to expand. And then he says, this peculiar thing with the enemy, or God, is that he seems, and he goes on to say, he seems to be three distinct persons, yet also one. He seems to have given everybody an individuality and yet has made them all to be dependent upon each other. You're going to hear a lot about this, he says. It's an impossibility called love. And I read that, and I thought, what a perfect commentary on the Pharisee standing there saying, I'm glad that I'm really good, and I'm glad I'm better than the badness of this tax collector. It's almost like the Pharisee read screw tape letters and said, yes, I will do the work of the enemy. My goodness won't matter to him. I'll be in competition with him. And I'll do better than him. And then I'll be thankful that I'm not like him. A few months ago, Chris Green, Dr. Green came here and he said a phrase that we often say, but for the grace of God, there go I, is an evil phrase. Because we see somebody whose life is wrong or hurting or less than or immoral, and we say, if it wasn't for God's grace, I'd be them. When God is saying, no, because of my grace, I want you to bless them. Because of God's grace, I want your image to become their image. I want your goodness to spill over into their life, so whatever it is that's causing them to be down is raised. But we're content, like Hezekiah, to say, at least things are going to be good for me. 
That's all I care about. I even had, like I said this before, I even had a friend of mine on Facebook one day say, at least I'm going to be at the marriage supper of the Lamb when everyone else is suffering. The spirit behind that phrase is not Christian. Jesus died to bring the marriage supper of the Lamb to us every Sunday. Jesus never said, at least I'm good here. He said, I refuse to be good here by myself. I'm going to bring my goodness to them, and I'm going to make them good with my love. And that's why we're all in the room this morning. Amen? So we're in a series here called Darker Days, Precious Light. How many love the fact that it's still pitch black at 6.15 in the morning? This is wonderful. I thought there'd be like one or two vampires who were excited about that. Frankie! All right. We are preparing for darkness naturally. At the same moment, we're being prepared for it yet again spiritually as we're about to come into the season of Advent in four more weeks after this. This is the 48th Sunday of 52 Sundays in the Christian year. And Advent, and the Holy Spirit makes us go through it every year, is the training we need to learn how to wait and wait well. I told Sophia that when she's waiting for stuff, sometimes she could be a brat. And the Holy Spirit was like... Sorry, I had to clear my throat for a second. I'm like, but Holy Spirit, you don't get sick. Why would you need to clear your throat? No, no, no. I wasn't clearing my throat. I was calling you a brat. I just didn't want to say it out loud. We can be bratty sometimes, no? Have you ever met somebody who's an adult brat? Right? Why are you all looking at me? If I'm here and you've met me today, you've met an adult brat. No amens. Thank you. The one time. I'm happy that there wasn't any. We need to be trained in how to wait because right now we're in ordinary time and ordinary time is coming to an end because for six months of the year, we need to be trained in what is ordinary. And one of the things that is ordinary is waiting. Waiting is an ordinary part of life. And we really live like we want to be so extraordinary that we don't need to wait anymore because we want to live like we have all of the things that we've ever wanted. But every year the Christian calendar turns back over to Advent and we start again and we journey uh, with, with Jesus from the prophets to the empty tomb and Pentecost every year. We journey with him and in this portion of the journey that's about to come in a few weeks, we learn how to wait because we're waiting for this very now underpreached reality called the return of Jesus, which is either something that we no longer talk about in our homes because it's too complicated, or we talk about it with such precision that we reduce it to something less than it really is. During Advent, we're going to talk about what is our hope What does it mean to hope that Christ returns? And so we're going to get there over the next few weeks. We're going to be talking more and more about it. But I want to say this. Prayer is one way we learn to wait. Prayer is the atmosphere that makes waiting fruitful. Prayer is the condition in which 
as we wait, things can grow while we're waiting. Even things can sprout in our life that are things that we weren't even waiting for. And so prayer is the greenhouse. It's the atmosphere. It's the culture that makes waiting fruitful. Last week, we talked about persistent prayer. We talked about the kind of prayer where it's a getting up again kind of prayer. It's the prayer where life knocked you down, your emotions knocked you down, depression knocked you down, anxiety knocked you down, and the minute you stand back up on your own two feet again, that was a prayer you prayed to the Father, and he answered it by giving you strength in your legs to get back up again. It's a getting up again kind of prayer. It's the kind of prayer that we all need. It's the kind of prayer we need to pray for each other. I cannot get up again when I get knocked down if you're not praying for me to have a get up again kind of prayer in my life. All right, and so we need to pray one for another because every one of us is going to get tripped up this week. We're either going to trip ourselves up because we haven't quite learned to walk yet. Like Theo, my son, thank God it's October because he walks just like Frankenstein. He sometimes falls because he hasn't learned to walk, just like us. He sometimes falls because he's tired of walking and doesn't want to do it anymore, just like us. He sometimes falls because somebody knocked him over because we couldn't see him because he's this high, like some of us. But we fall for all the same reasons a toddler falls, as we are supposed to learn from them and become more like them, or at least admit that we are pretty infantile sometimes. Today, we're going to talk about burning prayer. Today, we're going to talk about a prayer, listen to me, the kind of praying that reveals an inner competitiveness within ourselves. We can use a lot of words, and they're not wrong. Anxiety, fear, frustration, anger, unrest. But I'm, I, want, I want us to know today that a way to describe all of those feelings is the sense that within us is an inner competition. We are competitive against other people. We are competitive with the life we think we should be living and aren't. We're competitive with how far along in our life we feel we should be by now. We're competitive with the view of the good life. The world is constantly feeding us and thinking that if God blessed me more, I would have more of what the world is feeding me. We get competitive with the fact that we know we shouldn't be listening to that and still do, and we wish we didn't. Has anyone made a mistake this week and wished you didn't? That feeling is competition. We're competitive with our family members. We're competitive with our coworkers. We're competitive even in the standards we've set for ourselves. Last week, I prayed really well. This week, I didn't. Expresses a misunderstanding of what prayer is to begin with. But there's a competition that's making me feel like I always have to add up to a standard I pretty much have set for myself out of fear or guilt or obligation. It's an inner striving. Sometimes my false self is the worst, most gossipy enemy in my entire life. A whole church could talk about me, and you could never collectively talk about me the way my false self chats about me. And it knows me so much better than you do. And your false self voice is right here all the time, reminding you 
of who you're not creating space for you to be someone you never should have been at all, and yet you yearn for it. It's competition. The Pharisees in competition. Thank you that you didn't, that I'm doing better than this tax collector is. That's competitive. I fast twice a week. If you ever in your life, either to yourself, to the Lord, or to others, start giving your resume, you have a competitive spirit that God doesn't want to destroy. He wants to heal. How does Jesus heal? Here's the punchline. You can go home after this, but don't. Here's the punchline. How does Jesus heal the competitive spirit in his own life? He sits at a table across from his enemies. There's a competition at the Last Supper between light and dark, between good and evil, between the powers of heaven and the power of hell is present at the Last Supper. And Jesus doesn't defeat evil by destroying it. He defeats evil by offering himself to it. This is my body given to you, Judas. And you've heard me say it before, and I'll say it until I no longer possess the ability to speak. You cannot betray what has already been given. You cannot steal what has been offered. You weren't breaking and entering if I left the door open for you. And he destroyed, he, he ends the competition by giving himself to it. That'd be like the giant saying to the Jaguars today, here's 21 points. Don't. I don't want the Giants to be like Jesus. They've been like Jesus. I don't want them to be like Jesus. I want them to destroy the Jacksonville Jaguars today and be 6-1. and one. Can I get a witness from somebody? Can you imagine 6-1? and one? What? I, couldn't, I can't even count to 6 anymore when it comes to the Giants. Anyway, I digress. I am a Mets fan. I needed something, S-E. Well, praise the Lord for the Astros. That's all I have to say. Moving on. Moving on. Moving on. Moses gets to the burning bush, and his life, Salem, his life is in competition. Moses is in competition in his own self. Am I Egyptian or am I Jewish? I was raised to be an Egyptian, and I've learned the ways of them, but there's a part of me that looks different than everybody else that was teaching me, and there's a part of me that's yearning for this group of people, even though I was raised by this group of people, and there's competition in him. There's competition in Moses' life saying, I, I, I get, Egypt is blessed. That's why they have all of these slaves. The gods have been good to them. And then there's something else in his belly saying, that's not what blessing looks like. That's oppression disguised as blessing. There's competition within Moses' family that we'll talk about in a second. But he comes to the burning bush. He's conflicted within his own self. What do you mean you're going to send me? I don't know how to speak. I'm not eloquent. I can't use my words the right way. He's in constant turmoil. And in this short little six verses, we learn what St. Gregory of Nyssa said is burning prayer. And I'm about to plagiarize what somebody said about 2,000 years ago. Burning prayer. Number one is sandals off prayer. God says, remove your sandals. And St. Gregory said this, sandals are made from dead animal skins. And sometimes we need to remove 
the dead things that we hold so closely if we're really going to commune with God. There's a competitiveness in Moses, in, in Moses that he has to take off. This dead conversation he's having with himself. This fruitless inner monologue that he's having with himself. This struggle that he's having within himself. God is saying, take, before you pray burning prayer, before your heart can heat up, take off those dead things. And what happens when you take off your shoes in the sand? You can feel every grain of the present moment that you're on. You can feel. People will tell you, we'll call it new age, but people will tell you, if you're all out of balance, go to the beach, take your shoes off, and just put your feet on the sand and stand there for a moment and imagine each grain of sand. And it grounds you like a lightning rod. God was already telling Moses about this stuff long before the secret was ever written. God was already talking about this. Take, if you're going to be present with me, Moses, feel the ground that you're on. Take these dead things off. End the conversation in yourself. And sit before my burning presence. The next part of burning prayer is holy ground. Holy ground, this is such an underwhelming definition. Holy ground is the real ground you're on today. So many of us are so lost in what happened that shouldn't have happened and so concerned with what might happen that hasn't happened yet that we're not standing on the real ground of today. We're standing on the false ground of yesterday or the false ground of tomorrow, but we're not standing on the real ground of right now. We pray, and we don't pray honest prayers. We pray prayers that we think we should pray or we don't pray at all. But God is saying pray honest prayers. Holy ground is whatever ground you are on today if it's real and honest. Well, pastor, you don't understand. I am off. I am all the way off. Nothing about my life is right. Ever since COVID, my spiritual life has taken a nosedive. That's why I'm listening to you right now on Friday afternoon. I'm listening to this late. I wasn't even in church on Sunday. And I'm saying to you, the minute you can say that out loud to God, the ground you're standing on has become holy. Because holy ground is honest to God ground. You will make the moment of your life holy when you tell God exactly the truth about it. For some of us, it's a fearful thing to admit the truth. We just don't want to face it. For some of us, it's an ego thing to admit the truth. I've been wrong. I didn't handle myself well today. No one knows But some of my comments here and some of my advice there, it was all just a bit manipulative and controlling. None of them know it. I know it. And I can make the ground holy by telling the Lord, it's true, I did do that. Or I am scared. Or I am indulgent, lustful, not really loving God I would love to be able to love my neighbor, but first, could you just help me love my husband for two seconds, please? Anyone been there? Anyone got an amen in their spirit for that one? One amen left? No one? God, I want to love my neighbor, but I haven't been able to love my wife the right way. 
Anyone got an amen for that one? No one? Anyone want to stand up and testify? This one should be easier. God, I really want to love my neighbor, but help me love the kids that you gave me. Has anyone been there? Yep. Preach it, Pastor. Mom, put your hand down, Mom. My mom's like me. Holy ground is honest ground. Take the dead, fake, let's just call it what it is, untruthful inner monologue that we so often assume is prayer. Take it off and put your feet on the truth of what's going on in your life, what's really going on in you. Everything will become holy when we're honest. And then finally, what happens when we have sandals off prayer, holy ground prayer, is shared deliverance. Shared deliverance. My, your deliverance is inseparable from each other. Watch this. At the burning bush, at the burning bush, Moses is completely wound up in all of this competitiveness. And as Moses gets honest and the competition in him starts to wind down and he finally says, look, I'm afraid to go to Pharaoh. And if I do, I don't have the words to use. I'm not good at speaking. I'm not good at preaching. I'm not good at presenting. I'm not good at communicating. I have a bad personality. He says all of these things. And the next thing God says is, see, look, your brother Aaron is coming. He'll speak for you. So look, as Moses begins to be delivered from his inner insecurities, Aaron is delivered into his destiny. So Moses' deliverance of his fears becomes, gives Aaron his ability to be delivered into everything God has for him, which means Aaron's being delivered from a life of feeling useless into a life of ministry because Moses is being delivered of his insecurities. So the both of them that are now delivered, who do they go and deliver? Israel. So now Israel is delivered because Aaron got delivered because Moses got delivered. And then who gets delivered? Egypt. Why? Because God said to Abraham, through your people, how many of the nations will be blessed? All of the nations will be blessed. So Moses gets delivered, which gets Aaron delivered, which gets Israel delivered, which means they step into the promise of Abraham to be a blessing to all the nations, which includes Egypt. The world is getting delivered by each person realizing that my deliverance and yours are inseparable from each other. There is no competition. There's no competition. When my life gets blessed, yours does. When I make mistakes in my life, I'm talking now, not theoretically, when I make mistakes in my life, there's hiccups in your walk. Now, because God's not a gossip, he doesn't tell you why there's a hiccup in your walk. He doesn't lie and say, hey, we're going to pray for, we want to pray for him, so let's talk about all of his business. He doesn't do that. But there could be something that happens in your life because of something that's going on in mine. Because we're bound on this journey together whether we like it or not. When somebody in this body gets blessed, we rejoice. When somebody in this body hurts, we hurt. 
We don't live lives of individuality. Our individuality only exists the way the individual parts of my hand exist. The individuality only works when it's connected to the whole rest of the body, connected to the head, which is Jesus. My fingers cannot have an ego because they need the rest of my body to work. We have put individuality first and community second, and that is backwards. Have you ever had a cramp? That's what individuality first looks like. Your muscle just doing this, and you can't stop it. It's going off on its own. It's rogue. You can't get it back. You need someone else to come and stretch it for you, and then you need to drink more water. Everybody, for the love of God, it's the advice that I can give for everything. We're about to get divorced. Are you guys drinking enough water? Probably not. The Pharisee and the tax collector were in the right place. They're in the temple. They had the right actions. They were praying. But only one had his sandals off on holy ground. The tax collector had his sandals off and was standing on holy ground. And the Pharisee was standing on falsity and cursed ground. The Pharisee is competitive within himself. Thank you, God. And God's like, well, I've done so much for you. What are you thankful for? Thank you that I'm not like Aldo. And God's like, what? Yes, thank you that I'm not like Aldo, an adulterer, a fornicator. I'm just kidding. Now it's on, uh, online. Everyone's going to be like... <laughs> can't joke anymore, you know? Ruthie's going to kill you. And I'm going to be in a, I've somehow caused this to happen. I'm going down. It's terrible. He says, thank you that I'm not like this person. Thank you that I'm not an adulterer. Thank you that I'm not a fornicator. Thank you that I'm not greedy. I fast twice a week. I tithe on all that I get. His prayer is nothing but competition. He's trying to say that he's up 21 nothing on the tax collector. He's winning. And you know why the tax collector stands far off? It says Jesus is a master with every word he uses. He said, the Pharisee stood by himself and the tax collector stood far off. It doesn't say that the tax collector stood by himself. It says that he stood far off. But it says that the Pharisee stood by himself. The reason is when we stand by ourselves, we push other people far off. When my spiritual life is about me and my walk and my personal Lord and Savior, which doesn't exist anywhere in Scripture, that phrase, he's not my personal anything. I do not own Jesus. He's our Lord and Savior. Amen. He's our Lord and Savior. Amen. He's the Savior of Adam's race. Amen. The whole world. But when we have this truncated, reduced, tiny little, like basically the size of a coffin Christianity, and I use that intentionally, that makes my individuality more important than everybody else's, we stand by ourselves, and everyone else has to stand far off. Because we want to expand our life, our territory, our blessings, our bank account, all of our stuff at the expense of others. Good leadership in the church, in the home, as parents, listen to me, 
good leadership is not being righteous. I always try to say things very provocatively. I'm just going to leave one out there. Good leadership is not being righteous. You know who was righteous in his generation, blameless before the Lord? Noah. Everybody remember Noah? Righteous in his generation, blameless before the Lord. And how many people from his community were also righteous because of his righteousness? Everyone else died in the flood except for Noah and like eight people. So good for you that you were righteous. Your righteousness didn't spill into the community. Is that like Jesus' righteousness? No, because when Jesus' righteousness touches a leper, the leper gets Jesus' righteousness. It's contagious. Was Noah's righteousness contagious? No. He's like, I'm righteous. God's going to kill everybody else. Into the ark. Shut the door. He stood by himself, and everyone else stood far off. Job, on the other hand, was also blameless before the Lord. And when his life sputtered, everyone's life was rattled by it. Because his righteousness was contagious. Pointing us to Jesus. Who, when Jesus' light went out, the sun refused to shine. The earth stopped doing what it was told to do an acknowledgement of the fact that the one who holds the whole world in his hands is having a moment because his righteousness is pure contagion. It is contagious everywhere he goes. So good leadership is not being righteous. Good leadership is sharing your life with those around you and being honest about it. It's sharing your righteousness with the world around you, and it's also sharing your need to repent with the world around you. Confess your sins... Say it out loud. One to another. And you don't have to tell all your business. No one is saying that. But spoiler alert, the person that you think you've impressed knows you're sinful. Let's make this easier for everybody. Guess what? I'm sinful. Do you know that? I bet you didn't. Who said yes? The reality is a shared life is a holy life. A life open to the life of somebody else is a holy life. A closed-off life, if it's perfect, is a rotting life. That Pharisee's fasting was supposed to be for the tax collector. That Pharisee's tithing was to be to fund a temple that could bless that tax collector. That Pharisee's morality was supposed to teach the tax collector but he was using it against the tax collector. That's a competitive life. That is not the life that God called us to. The tax collector is far off, but he has sandals off, holy ground prayer happening. He's being honest. Lord Jesus, son of the living God, have mercy on me, a sinner. It's the second most prayed prayer in all of Christian history outside of the Our Father is what's called the Jesus Prayer. Lord God, Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Lord Jesus, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is sandals off, holy ground, burning prayer. 
It's honest, it's true, it's real, and he never says, have mercy on me, a sinner, and make me like the Pharisee who fasts twice a week, and make me like the Pharisee who can tithe. He's not in competition with himself or the Pharisee on the other end. He's just saying, have mercy on me and make me whole. Why? Because when his life is whole, guess what? The Pharisee's life could be made whole. And do you think maybe Jesus was saying this parable just to encourage one of his own disciples, Matthew the tax collector? Is it possible that Jesus is sideways telling Matthew, hey, Matthew, listen, I know they reject you. I know Israel doesn't acknowledge you. I know that even though you're of their people, they treat you like you're not. But the more that you repent and the more that you grow, your righteousness is going to fuel a gospel that's going to get everyone saved. And now we have the gospel according to Matthew, because he heard this. Don't be in competition, Matthew. Just pray that I would have mercy on you. And the more you pray it, the more you'll step into what is already yours, the more you'll come into your destiny, and the more your gospel will be preached in all the world. Let's have the worship team come on up. All said, I really feel like, and and let's just focus for a moment, I really feel like there is inner competition, a striving within yourself that many, many people in this room watching from home have. An inner competition competitiveness, like you're against your own self. Like there's a version of you that you're not living up to, and it doesn't feel motivating, it feels oppressive. Or there's people in some of our life who maybe even are gone by now, but we still hear their voices a little bit in our head. There's standards that were set that should never have been set. Come listen to what Jacqueline and I have to say about our homes on this exact topic. Unsustainable standards that we're never were supposed to fulfill. And so if you're living a holy life, you're not honoring these standards that never should have been there. And yet it feels like failure even when you're winning. God wants to soothe some of this competition. It could be as simple as every time somebody is wrong around us, we have to acknowledge it. We can't just love on somebody knowing they're wrong about something. We have to let them know one way or another that we know they're wrong. Otherwise, we're condoning it. Otherwise, we're letting them think it's okay. No, 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 no. That's competition. That's not conviction. There are moments in my life, you ready? I will open up one of the many collection of idols that I have. Got a whole trophy case of idols that we're working through in my life. One of them is that I feel the best when I know that I can influence you. I feel like a really good leader when I know I could get someone to change their mind. And what will happen is, 
when that isn't being brought into holy ground, sandals off, burning prayer, I will care more about changing Jen's mind than I will about Jen. Because I'm fighting for my life, not hers. Because if I can't motivate, then I can't lead. Then I must be doing something wrong. See? I use that one because probably 98% of us in this room suffer from that one. Pray. Take the sandals of those dead conversations that you have with yourself off and sit before the burning presence of God. Here's the thing. Will it burn you? Yes. Will it consume you? No. Will it be hot? Yes. Will it singe you to death? No. Will it be pleasant? No. Will it end well? Yes. In the business, we call it sanctification. In the early church, they called it judgment. It's making you right. But God invites you into what he's doing and saying, take off the dead skins that you're walking around with. Put your feet on the truth of what is happening and listen to me speak to you out of that. I have stuff I want to tell you, but I'm not opening my mouth until your shoes come off and you're being honest. Here's a prayer. I'm going to read it twice. First, exactly as it was written from the New Zealand Book of Common Prayer. That was the prayer for this morning, and it says this. All-seeing God, teach us to be open with you about our needs, to seek your support in our trials, to admit before you our sins, and to thank you for all of your goodness. I had Ian rewrite that with a couple little additions. All-seeing God, teach us to be open with you about our needs, sandals off, to seek your support in our trials, that's honesty, holy ground, to admit before you our sins, no competition, and to thank you for all of your goodness, shared deliverance. Let's stand to our feet this morning. Let's just close our eyes for a moment, Salem. And let's be honest. If you're here and you're saying to yourself, I need the voice of competition to get quieter and the voice of compassion to get louder, would you just raise your hand this morning? If you're saying in your own life, the competitive voice, be quiet and the compassionate voice speak up. If that's you, just keep your hand up. And now, here we go. If your hand is raised, come to the front right here. Move to the front right now as the worship team begins to minister. Stand in the presence of God as Stephanie and our worship team minister to you before we come to the table. But I believe, I'm gonna pray for you right now before they sing, Holy Spirit, I pray that everyone who's being honest this morning would sense the heat of your presence right now, even physically. Let us feel the heat of your presence in the room this morning.
show us what the sandals are that we need to take off in this moment. Reveal to us just one dead thing that we're treating like it's alive. And silence that voice. Give everyone right here the spirit of honesty in their own mind, in their own heart, right now, to tell you the truth about how they're feeling, about what's going on. And then I pray over the next few moments that we would feel the motivation to do this every day. Thank you for this controlled environment that we're in, but let this teach us that we can do this on Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, Friday, and Saturday. We can have this moment with you. We could put on music. We could stand in our bedroom and we can spend five minutes taking off the dead things, being honest about our life, and waiting for you to bring such deliverance into our life that it spills into the lives of those around us. Holy Spirit, remove the voice of competition and bring in the voice of compassion. Thanks for listening to the Salem Tabernacle Podcast. For more information about us, including gathering times and our location, check us out online at salemtabernacle.com.